Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Transplant's Take on Sport. My name's Lewis Daniels, and today's guest is liver transplant recipient Emma Wiltshire, the world's fastest female transplant sprinter, and then some. So make sure you stick around to find out more. Emma tells me about her unbelievable achievements in athletics both before and after her life-saving liver transplant, winning multiple medals throughout the time she's been competing. The story behind Emma's liver transplant is a traumatic one that has seen her overcome so many obstacles, showing great determination to return to the track. Over the course of the next hour and a bit, you'll hear about this in more detail, and I hope you take something from it just like I have. If you're enjoying the podcast, please make sure you press subscribe or follow wherever you normally listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you'd like to follow the podcast on social media, all the links will be in the show notes. Emma Wiltshire, welcome to Transplant's Take on Sport. Thanks for having me. You're a liver transplant recipient, the second one we've had on the podcast, and two back-to-back. And your story is pretty mental, transplant-wise. <laughs> so really much. listeners, please do stick around. There's a lot, there's a lot to go through on this. You're also a sprinter and a very talented sprinter at that, both before and after transplant. Is there anything specific that you're training for at the moment for when a competition might be back now? And anything to go for, anything in the pipeline? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's been really tricky the last kind of 18 months with, with COVID and with, with training with everything. So there's not been much training going on. Um, but I've kind of got my eyes set on it would have it would have been a World Transplant Games year this year. Unfortunately, that was cancelled. So looking ahead for two years now in Perth, Australia, is kind of the next big aim. But um, I'm also back. I, I call it kind of semi-competing. I had a competition actually um, on Wednesday night, so t- two days ago, um, which was very very low key. It was kind of a, a, a vets league for my club, and just kind of turn up and see where I'm at, which okay but not great um but but yeah and then it would be nice to to get a, another indoor season so I haven't done a sort of full indoor athletic season um for a while and it's kind of what I what I prefer most it's 60 meters so it's nice and short indoors don't have to worry about the wind or the rain or the cold um so that would be kind of uh, uh December of this year but going into January February of next year plenty to look forward to then I've been reading your story that you sent me before doing Mm -hmm. this and 
you said that you gave yourself a break from athletics after the 2019 World Transplant Games. Yeah. And then lockdown hit. And being so sporty like you are, how did you find lockdown? How did you cope? How did you stay active? Uh, so, yeah. So, as you mentioned, so I... So I was aiming for the World Transplant Games in 2019 and I kind of um, achieved a lot of the goals that, that I wanted to. Um, I had a really, really busy week, uh, year at work. I changed jobs and I was traveling all over the world um, and it was something that I was really enjoying. But after the Transplant Games in 2019, I was just like, I've, I've done everything I wanted to achieve. I'm absolutely exhausted. I need a break. And I thought that might last a month. It ended up lasting six months. I didn't. I mean, I didn't go to the gym. I didn't step onto a track. I didn't run. I mean, some some people might call it burnout. I think for me, it was just an extended period of rest that I needed. Um, and then lockdown hit and, you know, transplantees were basically told, don't leave your house, complete shield. And I was like, right, well, I'm not walking anywhere. I'm not running anywhere. I'm not doing anything. Let's get the home videos, you know, kind of fitness videos, YouTube all, all on. And Actually, I was like, do you know what? It's it's good. It's good to be active again. It's good to be doing something again, even if it is just in my lounge. And that's where I was kind of realised that I've missed this and I need it in my life and it is part of my life. So um, as soon as we were able to sort of be released back into the into the wild, I kind of um, started doing a bit of running. It wasn't on a track. Tracks weren't open then, but kind of on roads, on a bit of hills, a bit of uh, fields near us. And um yeah, I was I was like, this is this is who I am. This is what I do. This is what I've done for over half my life. Um, and it was just nice to have a bit of normality and what was complete chaos, basically. So what sort of activities with the videos were you doing at home? Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I can do a bit of a plug, but I was doing sort of the Les Mills workouts, which were <laughs> completely mad. I don't know if anyone's been following them, but it's the sort of body pump stuff um, and grit where you're just kind of going for about 20 minutes, half an hour, which is all my concentration span really can last when it comes to sport. I'm an out and out sprinter. So even that was a bit tough, but they're, they're really pushing you hard and then you're absolutely flawed for sort of the rest of the day. But it gives you a bit of a kind of a buzz of you've worked, you've worked hard and, and you know that you're really sort of keeping fit. So and, and, and building and building strength and getting strong again, which which has always kind of been important to me. I read that you've done a bit of yoga through lockdown. Have you ever done it before? Yeah, I'd sort of dabbled. I think it's, you know, I've got a bit of a, a chaotic kind of um, work life in that, yeah, as I mentioned, like to travel, travel a lot with the world and um, work in sport, high performance sports. So that can be pretty stressful at times. So yoga kind of keeps me a bit zen. So um, yeah, I was doing a lot of that kind of almost daily, just trying to sort of wake up and, and do it. And sometimes you just feel like I don't want to do this. I just want to sit around and lie around and do nothing but actually for me it's really beneficial in that even if it is just 20 minutes half an hour 40 minutes it's I find it really beneficial and it's something that like my mum has always done you know she's in her 70s now and she still goes to like a weekly yoga class so it's kind of those things that you know it's available to all and can be tailored to to any kind of level so I like that. Do you think you're in a better position now to compete having had that period of rest and taken on some different activities at home through lockdown? Yeah, I think perhaps not physically, but mentally. Um, I I just needed it. I was, I just had no drive. I had no ambition to do any sort of running at all. And 
it was um that's kind of the thought of going on a track was just leaving me like oh that would just be a chore and that would be I don't I just had no want to do it so if I hadn't had that I, I feel like I maybe would have just carried on slogging it out doing as doing as normal until the lockdown hit and then maybe I would have thought during lockdown I don't want to do anything rather than the complete opposite I'd had that break beforehand and by the time lockdown and someone tells you you can't do it it's almost the exact like oh god okay when when can I do it and when can I get back on the track so it was it was beneficial definitely from a from a psychological point I think we've all well a lot of people have had that time to to rethink reevaluate and focus more on themselves but being at home especially people like us who've had to stay at home and at first it was stay at home you can open a window if you want <laughs> but you can't leave otherwise this happens um it's yeah it's been good to for me anyway reevaluate rethink work out what i actually want and get moving from there it's now what as we're breaking out again it's a it's a new start and a new uh, re re i don't know get back to life again start it again new start yeah yeah i think so and i mean everything sort of flipped on its head a little bit i mean i know that i I'm not going to return to, you know, athletics pre-transplant was, I was training a lot. It took a lot of my time up. Um, but, you know, now that I've kind of, as you said, it's kind of a, a pause and reevaluating what's important to you. So I've got the headspace to go now. It doesn't matter if I can't train every day for hours. What is important to me is that I found a sort of space that's comfortable and, and makes me happy that I can go to the track. I can do an hour and a half. There's a little group that I just sort of started doing a little few sessions with. Um, and that that's all I kind of need right now. And that that keeps me ticking over. And that's what makes me happy. And that's something that I can do for me, even if his work is is, is busy and stressful, then I can go, no, I'm, I'm stopping this for now. And I'm going to go to the track and do something. And that's, yeah, that's, that's important to me. And it's definitely not exclusive to transplantees. I think that's, you know, lots of people can 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 do something like that. Absolutely. We, you mentioned your athletics pre-transplant there. We'll come on to that now. And for people who don't know, you are a, a very, very good sprinter. When did you first take up athletics? Um, so I was 14 um, when I actually joined a club. Um, before that, I'd kind of done a bit of running and a bit of jumping at, at school. Um, so county championships, for anyone that's kind of familiar with that. I, I think I'd won county championships before. I'd even sort of joined a club and I had this terrible technique and just someone, my school teacher said, right, you've got to get yourself down to a club because we can't do anything with you anymore. So, like, oh, okay. That's a little bit scary. So I joined at 14, which is a little bit late for athletics. Um, people usually join clubs probably, um, I don't know, in their, when they're 10 or 11 or something and just do kind of run, jump, throw, lots of different multi-events. Um, but I was 14 and I knew that I definitely wanted to run I wanted to go as fast as I could. Um, I couldn't go very far <laughs> because I ran out of steam. <laughs> but I just knew that, that that's what I wanted to do. So, um, so yeah, I, I went down to my club, which was Northampton Phoenix at the time. Um, in Northampton, um, it was about 20 minutes away. And, uh, yeah, sort of all started there. This might sound like a really, a really basic question mm -hmm. that uh, people might have asked you, at the level you've been at, people might ask you a lot did you win all your events on sports day at school? <laughs> By some distance. Yeah, yeah. So I, the first memory I have of, of running was in 
primary school. I'm not actually sure if it's a memory or that I've seen a photo and it kind of uh, jogged a bit of a memory, but we had these uh, sticks with stars on. So if you were first, second or third, you've got a stick with a star on. If you were first, you've got the biggest stick with a star on. And if you were third, you've got like the, the smallest. And I remember coming third in that. And that was kind of, I think, the the last time that I didn't win something at school because I was like, never, never again. <laughs> so at secondary school, um, yeah, it was it was kind of win- winning by a fair amount. And it was sort of known as like, I remember some of the kids used to call me Popeye because I had uh, like muscles in my legs. So, I, you know, other girls my age didn't and they didn't like it probably because I used to beat the boys as well. But um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's when I kind of noticed it from like age age 12, 13. And at that point, it was when I when I joined a club and sort of uh, progressed even further from there. So obviously being good from a young age and you went on to compete in the British Championship finals and you were part of England and GB under 23s. Was there a point where you were scouted and picked up by GB or a, a higher level club than your local club when you were younger? Yeah, so in athletics, it's probably kind of uh, different to other sort of team sports in that you don't necessarily get uh, scouted. You can enter yourself in competitions and it's all done kind of on um, selection basis. So, And it's also a unique thing about athletics is that you could be training as a pretty recreational athlete and be training in the same group as an Olympian. You know, there's... You're, you're doing the same sessions as, as them. You're doing the same um, training. You're just not quite as talented, but you can do the same sort of, of work. And then um, as an athlete, you'll go to sort of national championships and you'll, you'll, go, you'll get selected from there. So, so for me, I think it was um, doing like an indoor championships and they're based on time and they were doing, you know, we're going to send a team away to, to Norway and that's how I got selected for <clears throat> for being uh, for England, and then again with the under twenty threes, it was all sort of done on times from from previous seasons. And that season, I was kind of top top ranked in the top, um, I think three or four in in the country for, for under twenty three, based on the times that I'd done pre pre selection. So yeah, got to go and do relay teams um, for under twenty threes for Great Britain when they were competing against um, other other countries. And you mentioned that you can be. A recreational athlete training with Olympic standard. Mm-hmm. What did your training involve when you were with those teams? Um, well, so I guess it changed pretty much when I went to university. So when I was um, sort of 16, 17, training was maybe, you know, we had like two running sessions a week, uh, two weight sessions a week. And then when you're at university, it gets a little bit more serious and you're, as I said, you're surrounded by elite athletes everywhere and there's nothing really stopping you from doing exactly the same sort of sessions. So I think the most I was ever training, um, probably most of my 20s, so from about 20 to 25, 26, maybe even to 28, I was doing um, probably about three or four running sessions a week and then another three gym sessions a week on top of that and then during the summer you're you're racing most weekends as well so you're traveling kind of all over the country or um in my case sometimes over to to europe to compete um and again you can just you don't necessarily have to be part of the british team to do that you can um compete for your club or for a university um but but yeah that's that's all how it works what sort of times you were running back then when it was the, the british championship finals that sort of level um, so for, for 60 metres, I was running uh, 7.5 seconds was uh, my, my best time. And then 100 metres was, was 11.7 was my 100 metre PB. Impressive. Was there a plan to ever go can you, I mean, uh, Olympic level 
that sort of, I know you're at a very high level anyway, the British Championships, but was there a ch- the plan or a chance to go higher? Yeah, I think when I look back on it, I've always been quite a realistic athlete. So um, probably when I was younger, it would have been kind of, oh, Olympics would be my main aim. But actually, I when I got to kind of, you know, late teens, early 20s, and it probably doesn't sound very much, but I was probably about uh, three or four tenths off making that Olympic team, which, you know, is, is a split second, <laughs> you know, less a second, but in, in running, it, it's quite a lot. And I was... I was pretty just happy with the level that I was at. I had ambitions to win regional championships, which I did. I had ambitions to medal at national championships, age group championships, which I did. Um, And, you know, I had had an injury, a a small injury, possibly at a a stage where I could have progressed to the next level. But I was also, you know, looking at, at these athletes and, you know, it's it's a really big commitment to put everything into it and to go to that next level. And you have to be super talented. And I was always quite kind of, um, you know, knowledge about the fact that I'm not, you know, a super, super, super talented. And I was I was pleased with the level that I was at. I was a good national standard. And and that was um, kind of kind of my nice niche that, that I was able to find good level competition. I was able to win good level competition, um, but but never make it onto that Olympic team. You've always got the memories of that as well, being at such a high level where you were and you you mentioned in that bit we we're chatting about there you're training you said up to about 28 not long after that comes the transplant story which we'll move on to now again reading your story you were in portugal with the wales commonwealth games team you said you're involved in high performance sport mm-hmm. did you have any idea that there might be something wrong at that point no, so yeah, so I'd, I'd moved down to Wales um, from, from Loughborough, which was my base at university, and I uh, I was living there at the time. Um, I'd moved down to Wales, and I'd got, a, you know, I had I had some uh, some colleagues down there that I'd worked with before, so I was um, involved with the with the Welsh Athletic Setup. I was actually doing sort of soft tissue massage with them. Um, and probably around the May and June of 2014, I had um, been diagnosed with um, colitis, with ulcerative colitis, which is a pretty nasty illness to have. And it makes you feel pretty rubbish. You know, you know, uh, symptoms of fatigue, um, anemia. You just you don't feel great. So I wasn't feeling 100 percent and I knew that I wasn't feeling 100 percent. But yeah, so we we flew to we flew to Portugal and there was actually, actually two days before flying to Portugal, I'd been quite physically sick and, you know, I was listening to Andrew's podcast and he said the same, he'd been quite, quite physically ill. Um, but even the next day, typical athlete, woke myself up, took some uh, Red Bull, drank some Red Bull and raced that, that next day. <laughs> so, and then the day after we flew to Portugal and the, I think two days after that, I'd collapsed and was in a coma. It's quite quick. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty quick. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I we arrived in Portugal on a Wednesday. I was uh, treating all day Thursday, so I was doing massage all day Thursday. And that day, I'd I was feeling really rough, and I'd actually sort of I was getting um, sort of hot sweats and a headache. I'd actually gone we were um, like a sports resort near the sea, so I'd gone to sort of stand in the sea to try and cool off and try and get a bit of a bit of this nausea. Um, and then that night we were supposed to go out for one of the team managers' birthdays. So I was like, oh, let's just go down to the bar and have one drink. And I thought, I, I can't do this. I'm so, I feel so ill. I've got such a bad headache. 
So again, typically, you know, pop a few painkillers, went to bed, woke up the next day and thought, oh my God, something is seriously, seriously wrong. You can obviously remember quite a lot of it. For some people, that might be a complete blur from feeling a bit, feeling sick Mm -hmm. to collapse, coma. I'm new to learning about liver transplant, liver failure through being kidney myself the coma is that common for liver failure so I think my case was quite unusual from the fact that as I said I was I was racing on a Tuesday doing you know um some sort of sport and then from I don't know whether it was just sort of like brush it off and I can keep going and actually I was more ill than I than I thought it was but um the way that it kind of went so dramatically I, I haven't heard of many others that are that sort of quick. You know, I've heard that they were ill and then they went to hospital and then they knew they were having a transplant. Whereas with mine, it was, you know, I was in the in a hotel, collapsed in the lobby of the of the reception and remember coming round and then just the pain in my abdomen was so severe. I remember saying to the team manager, I'm dying, I'm going to die. And and he said, you know, not, not on my watch, you're not going to, basically got, got me to the hospital and I just thought, how how can I make them believe me that I'm in so much pain? So I just threw myself on the floor and thought, right, uh, just someone can just help me. Um, and the next thing I know, they I was on a on a sort of a, a bed. They were trying to sort of stick wires on me and, and and tubes in, and then that's pretty much all I remember for about um, a week. I think I was in a coma for. Um, and then, yeah, as I came round, crazy, crazy morphine dreams for about another sort of few days. Didn't really know whether I was conscious or unconscious, um, and but but very aware that I'd had a liver transplant. So it must have been that while I was coming round and while I was in the coma, the nurses who were extraordinary just it must have kept on telling me, you, "You've had a liver transplant. You've had a liver transplant. You're okay." And and at no time did I not think I was okay because I mean, morphine. <sighs> never again do I ever want to experience the crazy kind of morphine dreams that I had and and the hallucinations but at no time did I was I worried or was I scared I remember asking the nurse at one point is it going to happen again is my liver going to fail again and she said no we've we've got you now we've we've looked after you we've we've saved your life it's a scary time but a a fascinating story with the speed of it all Mm -hmm. I think people will be interested on a side note from that the morphine dreams, what mm. what did they include? And were you on a, a really high dose? Oh, well, I can only assume. So, so yeah, so after the coma, they they basically didn't know what was wrong with me. So while I was down in the Algarve, they, um, they'd done a surgery to just basically open me up to see what was going on. And at that point, they saw that I had an incredibly enlarged liver. Um, and then they had to, they they kept me in, they, they phoned my family um, they said you have to get over here. Um, she's going to die. Basically, that was that was how serious it was. Um, and they then they got me up to Lisbon, did did the transplant, few few complications along the way there. Um, but then when I was coming round from it, the the morphine dreams I I had. So the, the the biggest one was that I thought my husband, who you know we'd been married less than a year at this point, was having an affair with one of the nurses. <laughs> and it sounds pretty ridiculous, but. I was so certain in my head. So when they'd let my husband in to see me, I, I wasn't really sort of conscious of what was going on. 
I was apparently and, and couldn't move at this point you know I'd been in a coma for a week lost all my muscle lost about 10 10 kilos of muscle just tried to hit him apparently because he, was, <laughs> he was I was just so determined that he was having this affair and then at night I was I was dreaming that I was in a boat which I now put down to the fact that my kidneys are packed in so my liver had failed completely and my kidneys had, had, uh, had failed um and so I was on dialysis as well. So the noise of the water going through the dialysis must have been my subconscious because, right. again, with, with the doctors, I um, I was asking them what, what boat we were on when I came round because I was telling them, they said, no, 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 we're not on a boat, we're in a hospital. I was like, well, yeah, I know, but it's an amphibious hospital, you know, obviously. <laughs> so it was just, you know, yeah, crazy time that I would never want to repeat, but so vivid. I mean, this is coming up to seven years ago and I can remember those dreams as if they were like yesterday and I could write a whole book about those dreams which is yeah just insane it's so interesting all this stuff going on I was saying to Andrew on the last podcast I think his time from finding out something was wrong to transplant was I think it was 12 days and then I thought that's quick that's really <laughs> quick and then I read your story ah two yeah typically it's competitive next level <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, it, it, people kind of asked me like, oh, was it tough for you? Was it difficult for you? And my main answer is I was sleeping. I didn't know any of this was happening. What I feel for is, you know, my mum who lost my dad when I was quite young. So she it was sort of a bit of a history of repeating itself for her, thinking that she was going to lose her daughter. It was my husband. Again, ha- having to have that phone call saying, your wife is dying, you need to get to Portugal, you know, and and then they gave me about 5% chance of survival. Um, similar to Andrew, I went onto the top of the emergency national list for Portugal. Um, so I, I keep, I sort of hear snippets of it that I think there was three of us on that, on the very top of that list. Um, and the, the organs came in and it was, you know, I was the youngest, I was the most likely to survive. So I got that liver which again, I don't know anything about it. I, in, um, in Portugal, it's, uh, it's an opt-out system. Like we're sort of rolling in into, into the UK and in various parts. So, you know, thank God that liver was, was available for me. Otherwise, there is no two ways about it. I would not be here. So there's, you know, and I try and drum that into as many people that I can, that organ donation is so important. It matters so much. And there's so many people here that I know now that just wouldn't be alive because if organ donation didn't exist and that just blows my mind. Absolutely. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will have been personally affected by organ donation, whether they've had a transplant, someone in the family's had a transplant. And I'm hoping there's people listening who haven't been through it, don't know anyone who's been through it. And if, if that is you, please have the chat with your family. Have a look online at all the different resources out there have the chat make sure that the people around you know what you'd like to happen to your organs if the worst does happen because your donor I don't know if you've met the family or not but would they have saved they would have saved more lives than just yours yeah so so in Portugal it is all anonymous um it's one of the things that I think that they tries to help them with with the process um so I didn't really know, I've never been able to reach out to the family. I've never met any of them. Um, there's there's no way of me ever getting in touch with them. And I don't know whether that's, you know, um, it, it was obviously the first thing. When I when I was conscious and knowing what was happening, I, all I wanted to say was thank you, you know. And it was this this family have made a decision at the, the worst possible time of their life, 
hope, you know, hopefully with the with the consent of of their son. It, it was a man whose who um whose liver I received. Um, but yeah, I think it was you know it was it was a young man. I think he was in his early twenties and went on to save uh, nine lives. I think from from that. So nine people being alive just because of organ donation. And you know, as as you said, so many other people have have similar stories. Uh, just please have that conversation and, and have chats with your family and it doesn't have to be you know morbid you don't have to talk about death we just go oh you know I've heard this story I've heard that it can really good stuff can happen out of organ donation and you go yeah yeah sounds, sounds good and that's it that's that's about it you know but it's, it's so important of course and the if you do decide to donate which we really hope you do your legacy could live on afterwards and other people would be so thankful for the decision you made, the gift that you've given them, that they could thrive going forward in their life, like we've done. Let's come on to what happened after your transplant, because if the story wasn't mad enough, <laughs> it continues after that. There was quite a few complications afterwards. What exactly happened? You've already mentioned the, the kidney failure, and there was more life-saving surgery, wasn't there? Yeah, so um, again, I, I'm quite blasé about it all. I think because I've talked about it quite a lot, I... I've never struggled with talking about it at all. I have never struggled with any sort of mental health issues at all, which I can only put down to the fact that I just kind of talk about it quite a lot and it seems quite normal to me to talk about. But um, It's but so yeah. useful as well to talk about it, I found. Yeah, massively. And, you know, because I was in Portugal at the time probably and then came back, I was having to tell lots of people because they weren't there to sort of know what was going on. Um, but, yeah, so after my, my transplant surgery, I was st- still in the coma, but... Um, the next day, uh, my family were told I'd had a, a massive bleed in my chest, and I think they nicked an artery during during the surgery, and that they were having to my blood pressure had massively dropped, and they had to rush me back into surgery uh, to to fix that bleed. The hemothorax um, put a put a chest drain in, um, and then wheeled me back, still in the coma, still really not sure what was going on. Um, and then when I came round and I sort of was a bit more, um, you know, knew what was going on, uh, I had a, a lung collapsed, which, which again, I've, I've spoken to people and they said it is actually quite common. But at the time I was, you know, I was in pain everywhere. I couldn't move, but they were trying to feed me and trying to, you know, it was really important that I ate at that point. And I was just saying, I'm in a load of pain and I'm not just moaning for the sake of it. So they took me to to get a scan and yeah, I saw that my lung had collapsed and was actually pushing on my uh my um my inside so that it was uncomfortable to eat so they uh, they got another another chest strain in um and that stayed in until they flew me back to Birmingham so I was in Portugal in, in intensive care for a, a month um in the ward for a week um the recovery ward for a week and then uh, they they flew me back to Birmingham after after five weeks um and I'd say that was the last week was was the toughest because all they were waiting for was a bed to become available in, in basically any hospital. They were looking at the various liver centres that they could find me back to. Um, Birmingham was the closest. I was, I was living down in Cardiff at the time, but uh, Cardiff doesn't have a liver centre. So Birmingham was was useful for me, mainly because I have I had family there. Um, it was close to my mum who, who lives in the Midlands. Um, and yeah, it was every day they were coming saying, no, we can't, we can't send you back. We can't send you back. And at that point, I was just, that's, that's the most down I've probably 
ever been since the transplant and ever since because I just wanted to get home. I just wanted normality. They couldn't speak um, English in that ward. In intensive care, I had some some bilingual nurses, which was and, and doctors, which was just incredible. But in that ward, they just you know the, the food was bad. I didn't need the the sort of care that I needed in intensive care. So I was yeah that was that was my lowest point. Um, but then then they just came and said we're taking you home, and that was amazing. So yeah, from ambulance, I. I uh, went in ambulance to the airport, to, to um, Lisbon Airport, which was very close, very close to the hospital I was in. Um, had my own little private air ambulance that they sort of stretched me onto. Uh, took me back to Birmingham Hospital, Queen Elizabeth, um, in which I was there for about four days. And then they were like, right, out, out you get, off you go. And at that point, I was like, well, I can't walk. I can't do anything. I've been lying on my side for how do I do anything? They're like, oh. Yeah, you'll figure it out. So I did, I had to, and that was that. It's a remarkable story and recovery from that, everything you've had to overcome along the way, which do you think has made you stronger? Yeah, I think so. But I also think I was mentally strong to begin with, and that helped so much. That helped me fight to to stay alive in the very in the very first place. I I was, you know, and generally as someone that loves life and that's you know down to great great friends great family my husband you know I, I want to be here and I knew that like you know probably subconsciously I was, was a massive fighter and then um as soon after my transplant I was like right I don't want to be in this position where I'm lying and I've lost you know a quarter of my body weight and um it's not me so what what can I do to not be in this process okay it's a logical side of me this is what I need to do I'm going to go and do it and how long you mentioned some of learning to walk and all those sort of things how long did it take you to learn to do these everyday tasks again I know from reading your story which was very useful for seeing where this podcast would go breathing eating talking holding a fork sitting Mm up walking how long did that take and how mentally strong did you have to be to sort of accept, start with, I'm going to have to learn to do this again, and then to physically go and do it? Yeah, looking back, I I don't think I found it mentally tough because I just saw it as a challenge. So it was almost a bit of a game to me. And you're so you're so poorly when you're coming out of these situations anyway, that you're, you're not really thinking straight anyway. So you're just taking each, it's not even a day at a time, it's an hour at a time, and you're sleeping so much. Um, so... When I came around, I couldn't, I couldn't, it sounds bizarre now when I think about it, I couldn't even work out why I couldn't sit up because I couldn't stretch my neck to see what they'd done to my abdomen. So I couldn't see the pretty, you know, the Frankenstein image that was down there of the staples, the stitches, the tubes, everything. So, I mean, that was a bit of a shock when I first saw it, but just to be able to, when I moved from an intensive care to the ward, I had a kind of pulley that I was able to pull myself up from. So I could, it gave me a bit more sort of, I can see what's going on now and um, the physiotherapists would be working with me every day to try and get me even just from from bed to a chair I remember that sort of quite quite early on from when I was conscious and that was oh, it's just I remember feeling so ill whenever I did it and then they wanted to get me outside so getting from the bed to the wheelchair was such you know a big deal and and then the big socks go on and you're up walking and um it was just sort of holding on and I've, I've got pictures of kind of, you know, a nurse on one side and the physio on the other and just taking little steps. So 
I'd say by the time that I went from intensive care to, to the ward, so we're about a month, a month out now from transplant surgery, I could just about get myself from the bed to the bathroom if I needed to go in the middle of the night or something. And I was carrying my, you know, my chest drain, like sort of collector and everything. And, you know, it would take a long time, but I was able to get there. Um, and then when I got back to Birmingham, um, so yeah, we're about five, five weeks post-transplant at that point, I could just about start walking, walking down within the ward. Um, but at that point it was when I'd heard about transplant sport and the transplant games which I knew were going to be taking place in a year's time and that's when I thought right that's the next big game so there's your there's your main motivation the trans world world transplant games as well how long did it take you to regain your fitness and start sprinting again before that so it was it was definitely a slow process I remember um one of my friends came to visit me when I was back in Birmingham, one of my, one of my best friends, and she had been, she was being coached in athletics by, at the time by a guy called uh, Femi, who was, um, was the sort of athletics coach for transplant sport. And he had given her, uh, her the contact of, a, of, of Lynn, of Lynn Holt, who was the, you know, transplant, uh, Great Britain transplant team manager. He said, email Lynn, explain your situation see if there's any chance you're going to be able to go to the World Transplant Games next year because we've got no idea what sort of state that you're going to be in. So I was like, okay, right. You know, I'm still in hospital at this point. This is like how <laughs> ridiculously competitive I am and how much sport means to me. But I was emailing her saying, Lynn, I can't walk yet, but you know, I, I won the Midland Championships about uh, two months ago and then I had a catastrophic liver failure. Um, but... Can I be considered for the transplant, World Transplant Games in a year's time, even though I know that I'm not going to be able to make the, the British Games this year, which is you know usually the trials for? And she replied saying, yeah, keep us updated. Let's see how you go. Um, so, yeah, I was, you know, in, in hospital in Birmingham doing like little body squats and trying to like sort of lift like tins of beans over my head and think, right, OK, how can I? And I get my strength back because that's what was so important to me. I'm a you know speed speed power athlete, so I was you know uh, squatting big weights, Olympic weights, and I couldn't even hold my iPad at this point to sort of watch TV. So um, I'd say from from leaving there, all it all happened at a good pace. You know, I was very conscious, and I know it's something that Andrew mentioned about the the stitches and the scarring on your abdomen. Um, so as a lot of um, kind of core building. Um, and just general kind of circuits and, and taking things at a very slow pace. But I think the fact that I had that knowledge of, um, you know, working with rehabilitated, you know, if someone's torn and torn a hamstring, you know, you have to gradually go back into it to get back to, this is basically, they've, they've sliced me open and put a new organ in. So it's kind of a more extreme version of that, but the same kind of principles, like take everything slowly, only go to what you can do. Um, and yeah, I, I remember we went to on holiday to to uh, Australia of December that year. So this was about five months post transplant, which I had to have sign off from the surgeon, and which my travel insurance was uh, extortionate, but <laughs> I was determined to go. And I remember walking up like a sort of a small mountain up there, and there's just a picture of me, like still pretty skinny, but there's a picture of me at the top of that mountain, going, "Yeah, I, I can do this." And things are taking a bit slower than normal. Uh, but I can do this and and then another memory that I have is sort of April of the next year that I was working with Welsh Athletics um, full-time by that point and we'd gone to a camp in America in um, in Phoenix 
and some of the, the athletes were training and I was like, oh, can I just, you know, I've been doing a bit of, you know, fast strides. Can I just jump in with you? And I was on the track and I had my spikes with me and I was like, this is starting to feel sort of normal. And that was kind of March, April time of 2015. Was it at that point that you knew I'm probably ready? Yeah, I, I had it in my head that I, you know, World Transport Games was my aim. I'd looked at the times. I knew that I was sort of like old me would have been capable of, of, of running those sort of times. Um, I had half a mind, you know, I'm, I'm not specifically training for, for jumps, but I looked at them and I thought, I'd give them a go as well. You know, why not? I gave a bit, gave a bit of practice in. Um, and yeah, my, my first race back was in June, uh, June 2015. And uh, it was a, we have open competitions in, in athletics where you just sort of turn up, pay your, pay your, pay your five pounds or whatever it is and, and compete against anyone of, of any age or gender. So you just put down your sort of predicted time. So I put a predicted time down of about 14, 14 and a half seconds. And I was lined up with kind of 10-year-old kids feeling like a little <laughs> bit silly because I was 30 at this point. Um, and I raced and I, I crossed the line and it was a 12.8 and I just burst into tears. It's probably still one of the emo- most emotional moments that I've had. And it was kind of like, a, yeah, I'm back I've done this. I can do this. This is this is me. This is my life, and um, I've done it. How long after that were you told that you're in for the World Transplant Games? Um, I can't actually remember. You know, I think we would have had um, an email, sort of. I'm, I'm trying to think back now. I think it was probably around uh, December earlier in that year where I'd started to give them sort of uh, uh, kind of estimates of this is what I think I can do. I'm back, sort of sprinting now. Um, and they'd in, incorporated me into some of their uh, transplant training sessions. So they have uh, sort of um, four or five training sessions per year um, at the Warwick University at the Coventry campus there. So I remember going there probably in November of the year that I had had my transplant just to see what was going on and whether I was going to be fit enough and to see what sort of level I needed to be at. Um, and I remember going there and I, I couldn't do anything yet at that point. I wasn't able to do even sort of running drills or any running, but I just remember being there and it was the first time that I'd been surrounded by so many people that had, had a transplant and I just, I can't, you know, I can't implore people enough that have had a transplant to get involved with transplant sport because it's it's just such a phenomenal thing that, I mean, if I hadn't have done it, I just think I'd be still sort of in the wilderness trying to figure out what to do with, with my life and my sport. But, you know, instantly those discussions of like, oh, okay, well, what transplant have you had? And when did you have it? And what medication are you on? And it's, you know, it's, it's a community. It's a, it's a family. Um, so, yeah, I, I digress from your question a bit. There, but I just fine. wanted to talk about how amazing transport sport is, and I will continue to digress on any conversation and talk about that. That's a, absolutely fine. It's, mm-hmm. That's a big moment. I know for me as well, not World Transport Games, but when I first went to cricket training with the England and Wales Transport Cricket Team, I didn't take part, wasn't able to take part. I was told I'm not fit enough yet by the doctor. Don't go for it just yet. But talking to other people who've been through that and it's that I don't know about you with the realization of oh people like me do this yeah yeah and and 
you know, I've, I've said it before to people that it's it's so great that your your family and friends are always going to be there for you. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to have supportive family and friends, but um, no one really understands what it's like that you have to wake up every day and you have to take your medicine. And you've suddenly been put on, you know, recently, like a list that says, don't go and speak to people because you might get COVID and die. And, you know, that's no one understands that apart from like sort of fellow transplantees and when you don't want to take your medicines you don't want to go to checkups you have to you have to do that just to stay alive and to to be surrounded by people with that I think is so important and you know it's not necessarily a support group because you know we're we're hopefully fingers crossed all really well and doing well but how amazing is it to see other people that are doing well and be like oh god this isn't this isn't the end of the life this is just yeah this is just another section of my life it's yeah such special moments to have that family around you family of other people who've been through the same thing mm-hmm. and going back to those world transplant games in argentina what were you aiming for going into it and did you expect to do as well as you did it, as well as you did um hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I don't think I was expecting to do so well. I thought I've had it in the back of my mind that if I could replicate the sort of times that I'd done in those little pre-competitions in the 100 and 200 that I do pretty well 
um, and other people around me. So one of the team managers, Barry Laverick, who's, who's just fantastic. He's kind of mentioned to me, oh, Emma, don't you worry. You, you're going to be fine. You're going to smash it. I was like, but Barry, what, what if I don't? I don't know. Like, oh, no, no, you're our new sort of ticket to success. Like, I, don't, I don't think I am, Barry. I don't know. Um, I'd entered the other events um, and I'd been sort of doing a bit of training for, for the long jump and the high jump beforehand. Um, but still, you, you've got no idea. I had no other, there's no kind of world rankings of transplantees that you can compare yourself against until you actually get to the games. Um, and, and yeah, and in, in the end, I ended up doing pretty well. I'll dig you up because I've seen the results. <laughs> and pl- please correct me if I'm wrong. But first World Transplant Games, not that long after your transplant. Yeah, a year post, yeah. Six gold medals, four world records. That's yeah. pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, it was. I was really pleased. I mean, I have to. I have to say, I, I'm not going to big up myself too much. So the high jump, there was only there was only me. So that was an automatic goal. <laughs> so we can. That was that was a bit of a gimme. But um, but yeah, no, I was I was really pleased with the others. And I mean, I think it's it's only two days of competition. You have to sort of crush everything into those. So. That was yeah, hundreds, two hundred, four by one, four by four, long jump and high jump was was all within the space of two days. So it gets to a point where it's not even just a case of how can I do in each one. It's just survival. So <laughs> you know how how can I get to the point where I'm still okay enough to be doing the next event? Um, but no, that was it was it was really special and. You know, my, my husband was out there, my mum, my husband's mum, was they're all there as well. And um, again, it's a little bit, you know, you sort of do it for them as well because they've been through absolute hell and I think they need to see that I'm okay. I know that I'm okay, but for them to actually witness it and see how well I'm doing, that was important to me. Um, and it was important to, to Portugal, to, to my Lisbon hospital. So after the games, I went, I went back to, uh, to the Curry Cabral hospital in, in Lisbon and sort of gave them one of, one of those medals because, you know, there's, there's no question that without, without the incredible expertise of the doctors and nurses, then again, I, I, you know, I wouldn't be alive either. Was there a moment there? I mean, the medal might be it the sort of a the top memorable moment or proudest moment realization if you like of wow I don't know I think something some of it was a bit of a relief because there was this kind of pressure going in that um that I could do really well I think I'd had that sort of relief moment probably in that 100 meters like the the month before when I realized that I can still run and that I can still be competitive and actually for the 100 meters there's a there is a video of it I think somewhere with me coming out of 100 and because there's such this uh, a tailwind behind us basically almost stack it coming out of the blocks and it was almost all over so I take a few steps I almost lose my footing um and then I have to sort of recover from it, look up and think, oh, my goodness, I'm not going to win this and then sort of fight back. Um, so that was a little bit traumatic and a bit of a relief to win that one. Um, probably my favourite uh, memory from that game, though, is, is the four by one, um, because we weren't we weren't going into the lead uh, before the baton came to me. And then I just sort of took the baton and, and we sort of overtook the other team and, and won the relay. And that was you know, really special to be doing it with with other, you know, transplantees that you've you've come to know throughout the sort of training camps, and they're your friends now, and that was that's really special. That family feel again, 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just thinking about it now, and we're missing a World Transplant Games this year, which is just really sad, not just because of the element of competition, but, you know, I've got friends now from, from all over the world, you know, um, friends from Finland, South, South, uh, South Africa, um, America, um, Iran, all over the, the world where it's an opportunity and you get to see each other and catch up and we, you know, you can message and uh, see each other sort of over social media and, and keep in touch that way. But there's nothing like a sort of big celebration of everyone coming together from all around the world and celebrating life. That's, that's essentially what it is with, with a little bit of an added competitive element as well. <laughs> <laughs> I've said it before on this, the power of sport, bringing everyone together from different backgrounds to start with but then you all go through that same similar I don't want to say same similar experiences and then you're all together again yeah it is it is incredible and even on a on a British um sort of um level that my first British transplant games was was up in Gateshead um and so I was that would have been just before the the world transplant games I think that one um in 2015 and it was just looking around and there's there's so many people that have had transplants and all age groups and all abilities and you see the the sort of three-year-olds and the four-year-olds that are doing the 25 meter run and they're running into their arms of their parents that and they've you know the parents have gone through just the worst possible time and, and their kids are okay all the way to you know 80 year olds doing the walk around the track and that gives you a little bit of like oh god hopefully hopefully my new organ is going to last that long because no one no one tells you how long how long your organ's going to last really and they sort of give like a bit of an estimate and they said I think the doctor said to me at one point oh well, it'll be good if you can last another 30 years or something and I was like well I'll only be 60 at that point I'm planning on <laughs> sort of lasting a bit longer but at the same time it's it's that's why it's so important as well to just um do whatever you can and experience life and enjoy life and for me that that's sport and you know I'll hopefully still going for keep going in maybe not athletics I don't know how much longer I've got in me for training and for sprinting um but some form of sport is just super important you mentioned it there the the how long the liver lasts and this is something maybe I should have researched this before but can you have a second liver or a third liver yeah, I don't. I don't really know. I mean, everything seems to be a little bit of a confusion when it comes to my liver. They don't know why it failed. They don't have a definite diagnosis of what what it was that caused it. They've mentioned three different things. They've they've uh, mentioned you know autoimmune hepatitis. They've mentioned um, that it that could be uh, affected by the the colitis or the medication that I had for the colitis. Um, but you know, it keeps on even on my medical records. I think it keeps on changing. But I, I don't know, and it's not that I don't want to think about it, but it's just more of the fact that I know that I'm excellent hands now. I get you know more blood tests than I could ever ask for or wish for. So if something's going wrong, someone will tell me. And if that's the case, I will have to sort of go into it a bit of an unknown because I haven't been through that. You're on a waiting list for a transplant. You, you get the call. And I hear about people talking about that. And that's something of sort of my transplant journey that I never got. And I, you know, don't wish it upon myself. And I hope that I'll never have to go through that again. But if it does, it happens. And I've got a complete faith in that, you know, something, something good will come out of it. And if not, then I've had a really excellent, fantastic life that I'm very happy living now and doing all the things that I want to be doing. So I don't think there's anything more you can ask for. I think that's a good outlook to have as well. So positive 
on it and I've got to a point now where I've realised if anything goes wrong um, or if there is anything going wrong the doctors will pick that up and the these things that they can do. Yeah, I mean, how excellent are our NHS? Like, I just take it for granted. Someone comes to me and they said, like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling a bit poorly, I'm feeling a bit run down, and my instant question is like, oh, well, what do your blood say? <laughs> like, I just take it for granted that I, you know, get my blood test all done, and they're like, oh, well, I haven't ever had a blood test, I don't know what that is. I was like, oh, well, maybe you should look into it because they might be able to pick up something. And and with, you know, the consultants, and, you know, I've got different sort of gastro consultants and liver consultants, and they, you know, just take excellent care, and if anything sort of, picked up I've, I've got trust that they will that they'll look after me and how, how brilliant the system we've got that can do that absolutely yeah uh, back on to the uh, the world transplant games you are the gb athletics captain what's the process of being selected for that and what does your role involve um so yeah so after um argentina i was approached by by barry the um who was doing some team managing at that time um and he just sort of said that we'd really like you to be kind of involved would you be women's captain for us I said yes it'd be a massive honor um and so we look um at, for for Malaga it was myself and James um James Corbeck um we look at basically the sort of the standards that are happening if we need to set standards within athletics to to be selected for for the games off the top of my head, I don't think we had a set of standards, but so it's a little bit foggy now. It was a few few years ago, um, uh, but you just need to be sort of competitive and training regularly. You know, it's not just a case of like I fancy doing a bit of athletics at the World Transplants for for Great Britain. You know, you have to be um, sort of competing at the British Transplant Games or competing elsewhere or, or training regularly. Um, and then for for Gateshead Newcastle, um, Matt Cave came in, and it's a case of we, we look at the timetables. We we had to put a selection process in for that because everyone wanted to be part of the team and it was already so huge. So we had sort of um, standards that, that needed to be achieved and they could you know, be achieved anywhere, any sort of competitions. And they weren't massively, massively tough standards, but it was just so that we had that kind of um, level where we were actually sponsored um, with our kit that year by British Athletics so so thank you to them they gave us um, all our all our training kit so t-shirts and hoodies and rucksacks and, and caps and it just gave a little bit of a kind of nod to them to say we we're doing this right and we're going through a selection process and um, you, you compete for Britain and it, and it means it means a big thing so and yeah on the day just just being there um when I can in between running, literally running to, to different events, um, making sure everyone's okay. Um, making sure that we work with the team managers and who's going to be in those relay teams and getting relay declarations in. So, so quite sort of similar to my, so I've worked in, in athletics for, um, the last sort of 15 years in, in various kind of, um, roles with Welsh athletics, British athletics, and now back at Loughborough university. Um, so similar sort of, of, of work with that. And as a captain, you'll be someone that people could people can look up to as a role model as well. With everything you've done before your transplant, the experience, the journey you've been through with the transplant, and everything you've gone to achieve in transplant sport since then. We mentioned setting world records before, and again, correct me if I'm wrong. You are the current world record holder for 100 meters, 200 meters, 400 meters, long jump, high jump. It's relay in there as well. 
No, which annoys me. <laughs> so, but that's not, there's nothing, I can't control that. So, um, yeah, so those events, so going into, going into uh, Gateshead, I knew that the 400 was the one that had eluded me so far. And when I first started, it was, I was in Argentina, I was sitting on a bus and I was sitting next to Barry and he said, one day you're going to want to do the 400. And I said, no way, Barry, there is no way I'm doing a 400. I am an out and out short sprinter. 60 meters is my speciality. There's no way. And then as Kate said, it was going around, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to do it, aren't I? So I'd set myself that task of doing the, the 400. So that I had, uh, yeah, the, the one, two, four high jump, long jump that I had those. Um, and I was actually really, really ill. I have I haven't mentioned this to many people in in the run up. So I'd been I'd mentioned before that I've been traveling all around the world for work in in the run up to in in 2019. Um, and I think I was just completely exhausted. So I got to Gateshead and I was so ill. I was in bed for the four days before the athletics competitions, um, and I basically just my husband was bringing me food. I was sleeping. I was ill, and I woke up on the day of those competition and I thought. Right, I'm women's team captain. I've got to, I've got to do this. So, got got myself ready, and and it was a bit of a trying to do the the least I could to get to that 400 because I knew it would be just the worst. So, doing doing the high jump and the hundred and um, doing sort of the least I could do, but still try and win it. So it was definitely still still hard. And I remember standing on the start line for the 400, thinking, right, I'm not going to go for the world record anymore. I'm just going to go and try and win it. And then the the woman on the outside of me from Iran absolutely just took out the first 200. I thought, what is this? What is happening here? <laughs> took out the first 200. And then I thought, right, well, I've just got to go. I got to, I got to 300 meters. And one of our fellow athletes, Steve Jarvis, was just there, just going, just don't stop. Just don't stop. And that last 100 was so horrible. I looked over at the time, saw that I got the world record and collapsed. I was probably on the track for about 20 minutes. It took them, the sort of officials could sort of see me like asking me twice if I needed a paramedic or an ambulance and just gently rolling me off the track so they couldn't hold the timetable <laughs> up anymore. And my husband, Gareth, coming over, is there anything I could do? And we just sort of screaming at him I was in so much pain and I mean it was ridiculous I I do look back on it and think I'd put myself through a lot and in the build-up I was really really ill and I went on to to do those events and I had to it's still a massive regret of mine that I had to pull out the next day of the long jump which which I look at the results and I I probably would have would have won that and I wasn't able to help the the women's four by four who did go on to one uh, world record without me so they clearly don't need me um so now I'm kind of weighing up for for next time whether I attempt all seven again and try and get seven and try and see if we can get the the world record in in all of them because actually we're only a tenth off it in the four by one that this this year and I, I thought we were further away but we're only a tenth off it in the four by one, um, and whether they'd let me in, basically in the four by four, <laughs> to see if we could re-break that, and that would be a nice thing before I sort of move into the next age category to to hold all the world records in, in seven events. But the other half of me is just give yourself a break, just go there and do the hundred meters and enjoy it. But we'll see which one sort of uh, which wins yet. Yeah. And there's another record that you've got as well. This is like a 
a record episode. <laughs> uh, you became the first transplant athlete to compete at the British Athletic Championships in 2016. Do you know if anyone's done it since or is it still just you? I, I think it's still just me. So that was um, a, a big kind of driver after the after the first World Transplant Games in 2015. I then went back into training and wanted to qualify for the, the British Championships of non-transplant. And it's something that I almost took for granted uh, previously. I started uh, attending those when I was 16. So in total, I've probably done between 15 and 20 indoor and outdoor British Championships. But it was it's just sort of unheard of um, for, for a transplantee to go and do it. So you have to get a set qualifying time to, to be invited. Uh, so that was my... That's my big goal after that. I, I like to have goals. I like to have aims. Um, and yeah, so to, to get that time, um, I think it was about 7.8 seconds off the top of my head. And I think I ran 7.77. So, so just just got under it. Um, and to go there and and people asked me about this. It was, I hate to say it, it was a little bit anticlimactic, but only because I'd achieved it. I'd, I'd done the time. I'd been invited. That was me achieving the goal. So going there... And doing it, I knew that I couldn't be as competitive as I used to be. So it almost made me a little bit sad that I knew that I couldn't go there and be really aiming to reach the finals, which I'd done a few times before. Um, and to see so many people that were so super intense and driven. And I was just sort of there having a great time going, oh, I'm just here and it's brilliant. And I've, I've achieved my goal. And I actually got through to the semifinals. So that's top top 16 in, in the UK. So I was I was dead chuffed with, with that and and making it as far as I could but after that it was it was kind of like well I don't I don't know if that'll be my one of my goals anymore because I had sort of it was a bit of a tick box and, and I'd done that and I achieved it and it was it was it was great at the time to do it and I I'm in kind of a bit of a, a mixture in my headspace sometimes that I want to shout from the rafters I've had a transplant look what donation can do and transplantation can do versus just sort of getting on with things and you know just letting people find out if and when they can so it's trying to get a sort of good combination of those two your achievements since you transplant are insane and we, we could shout it if you want on here <laughs> you've had a transplant and you've got one two three four five world records and the first person to compete first transplanted athlete to compete at the british athletics championships i think i know what the answer to this next question might be but what are your goals for the future um so yeah it would I still have to decide what I'm going to do in Perth because that's that's a big decision every every time I mean that last 400 that I did I said never ever ever again but I mean it's been almost two years since then so let's wait and see what what happens in in Australia um but also just just mainstream athletics so I'm you know I'm over 35 now and that's when Masters Athletics kicks in It'd be really nice to to medal at a national championships for for masters. So that would be top three sort of over thirty fives in the UK, you know, regardless of, of transplant, just just mainstream athletics. But athletics is really tough to train for, and you're constantly trying to be better than you were the year before. And to do that, you have to either train harder or train longer or more to achieve that. And you know, I've got I've got other priorities in my life right now. I'm, I'm well. I say I'm enjoying work. Work has been a bit of a nightmare with COVID for the last sort of 18 months, but I know that I will be enjoying work, you know, as soon as COVID finishes and um, I want to look after my health. I don't want to be sort of laying everything out there on the track, like week in, week yeah. out. Um, it's really time consuming to, to be doing all that sort of training. Um, 
but I know that I'm the sort of person that needs goals and I'm kind of itching to make myself a, a goal so watch this space <laughs> <laughs> well myself and I'm sure everyone listening to this hopes you go on and achieve those goals and it brings us nicely to the listener questions so every podcast the day before I put out a post on Instagram Facebook and Twitter and ask if anyone's got any questions for the guest who's coming on so if anyone wants to do that in the future if you follow Transplants Take On Sport on all the social media pages, Instagram and Facebook are at Transplants Take On Sport pod and Twitter is at TTOS pod. You can get in touch with your questions either through the little question box on Instagram, comment, DM, however you want to do it for a chance to feature on the podcast. This week, we've got the listener questions coming in from Matt. I've got the message up here. He says, uh, what do you consider your greatest athletics achievement, both pre and post transplant? Don't let, her, don't let her be modest. She was a superb athlete pre-transplant and is now the fastest female transplant sprinter in the world. Oh, man. <laughs> Make me emotional. Um, I, think, I think, I guess I struggled to see myself as like a really top-class athlete because I work with Olympians and Paralympians. So I'm surrounded all day by, by elite sports people. Um, but I think going back pre-transplant was probably my national under 23 medal and it happened to coincide with when I ran my PB which I never broke um and that was just a really special moment to get across the line it was my first kind of national medal um and and to hear the time being announced just after I did it was uh, that moment I will stays in my heart for a long time and that's probably about 15 years ago now um post-transplant it's it's really nice to sort of win medals definitely but I think this is a bit of a random one but probably winning the high jump in 2019 at Gateshead so I've already mentioned that I was really sick I was you know really poorly in the in the lead up to those and just um it, it probably helped I'd lost some weight so I was shoveling down prednisolone and the same as not, not eating so I had this huge pred face and this skinny <laughs> little body um but I won the high jump there and it was the first and I hadn't done particularly a lot of, of preparation for it so I'd done a few kind of practice sessions in, in the weeks leading up um but when I got there I was like oh my goodness there's, there's eight of us there's eight competitors and you know I'm definitely not the tallest of these high jumpers I, I'd been researching I knew there was a, uh, a a woman there that had been a high jumper before she was Canadian I was like right okay she's probably going to take my world record she's probably going to win it um and somewhere out of the bag I equaled my PB on the first attempt of doing it which which made me win the the gold medal and and my fellow competitor equaled it on on the on the second attempt so on count back I I won the medal um and that was just completely unexpected and the first time I'd say that I was really under like a massive pressure and I came out the other end and still won it so I'd say yeah that one is, is probably like a really special one for me I think a high jump is a really good point because the greatest achievement is not I know a few people have said this is not always the gold medal yeah it's not often the the first one even if if that's a bronze one that's quite often the one yeah so I'm glad you said that yeah and it is it's not I mean I it's difficult to say this that I you know could do the hundred and you know maybe not always go absolutely flat out 
and I still might have be able to win it, which is just a really, really privileged position that I'm in because that is my background and that's what I do when I'm a sprinter. That's what I train for. But to do something that was a little bit unexpected and just, just meant a lot to me and doing that high jump and just coming away with it and being excited. But again, I have to figure out whether I'm going to do it because it comes before any of the track events on, a, uh, on, the, on the timetable for World Transplant Games. So let's, let's see if I do it again. The next question from Matt, one for the sprinters. What are your top tips for a powerful, fast start the first 20 metres? Uh, get strong. So <laughs> get, get really strong. So uh, so Olympic lifting, so squats or power cleans or anything that you can do that just build up the muscles in your leg. Um, there's nothing else really that you can do apart from have good reactions, which is probably genetic. Like um, I've been a little bit blessed with having really uh, good good reactions out of the blocks. And so lots of practice because it's not uh, a natural thing to get from a crouch position to an upright position. So lots of practice coming out the blocks and getting really strong in the legs is my top tips. And his final question is, when are you next running a 400? <laughs> oh, I can't. Oh, I mean, I was actually asked on Wednesday, so I was there for the 200 and they asked me if I could do a 4 by 4 and I said no. I mean, I've stepped foot on the track about five times in the last two years and the, the last 400 was also almost catastrophic um so not not for a while I think potentially in Australia if I'm going to go for those those seven world records those seven goals then that would potentially be my next 400 if at all we'll soon see (laughs) Emma it's been a a pleasure to talk to you today and this the story is so inspiring with everything you've been through how quick it was all the complications afterwards and the things you've gone on to achieve since then are I think we both said ridiculous. Uh, final question before we go, which is, as I say every week, one I ask everyone, what's one piece of advice you'd give to someone facing a transplant? Which I appreciate is uh, <laughs> possibly difficult considering that you didn't really know you were facing a transplant. No. So, I mean, I can't necessarily be in a position where I tell people if they're facing it, but I can tell people as soon as they have been transplanted, as soon as they are fit and well enough to do so, get involved in transplant sport because it is an amazing organisation, an amazing community. It's a, it's a family. It's my extended family now across the world, across the country. I would be lost without it. You can go there and you can do darts or snooker and bowls, or you can go and do a 5K or go and do stupid challenges like I do where you try and pick up a load of gold medals, but just do something and you will never, never regret it. There we go. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks to Emma. If you're listening to this and you're enjoying it, please do spread the word. Let your family and friends know let people who aren't your family and friends so just go and shout it in the street why not i would really appreciate the support and as many people listening as possible and if you aren't listening on apple podcasts which is the the most used app to listen to the podcast on it made a huge amount to me if you could go and rate it five stars on the show page on there and if you really want to as well along with the five stars if you leave a review um i'll read out any five star reviews at the end of the podcast in this little section here uh we've already mentioned the social media but go and follow them. Everything will be in the show notes, which wherever you're listening now will either be above or below, or depending on which app you're listening on. So if you have a look in there, drop a follow. There, by the time this goes out, there's currently a, a Euro 2020 fantasy football competition running, which you, if you want to still enter, you might be at a slight disadvantage because the tournament will have already started. But uh, if you finish above me and you follow all the steps that are on the social media, you'll be entered into a draw for a chance to win. Uh, a £20 voucher of your choice. 
Uh, and if you'd like to go on the podcast, I know some people have done this before, you can get in touch on social media. I'll try and read every message. And if you've got a story to tell, you can email as well, transplantstakeonsport at gmail.com. Let me know your story. I can try and get you on. Once again, thank you very much for listening. Thanks to my guest today, Emma Wiltshire. And I'm going to get my Jeremy Clarkson voice on here. The fastest female transplant sprinter in the world. I've been Lewis Daniels, and you've been listening to Transplant's Take on Sport. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.